So some stories of the day. Let's see, some people were arrested because the authorities didn't like, didn't think they were where they should be. After an innocent person was killed by those same authorities shortly before, free speech was stifled, and uh, when they were told not to speak of the events anymore, they were arrested and put into jail. Now, awaiting their trials, uh, the authorities were trying to shut down an entire movement before it brought them down. You know the story, governmental oppression, making the good guys out to be the bad guys, exchanging the truth for a lie, the government not caring about or obeying its own rules, the corruption of justice, rulers rules for one side that don't apply to the other. And I know what you're saying. Um, this isn't the country that I grew up in. I didn't think I'd ever lived to see this day. How has this country fallen so far so fast? This can't be happening in the United States. Oh, see, I wasn't actually talking about the events of this day, though they do seem to be similar. I was talking about Israel at the time of the fourth chapter of Acts. But the resemblances are eerie, I'll give you that, because corruption, and see, that's why I was saying when I was reading the call to worship, corruption, we're, we're talking about corruption today. Corruption always looks the same. From David's time, 3,000 years ago, to the time of Christ, 2,000 years ago, to our country today. Lord Acton was a British politician, and you'll know this quote, and, and the quote that he uh, is well known for is abbreviated. He said, power tends to corrupt, and we've got it as power corrupts, but he said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. What is left out of that quote is this. And this is interesting, that they didn't continue on with the next line. Great men are almost always bad men. Think about that. Great men are almost always bad men. Why does the United States look like a banana republic today? Because power corrupts, and great men are almost always bad men. This is my answer for you. Why was Jesus crucified and the early church persecuted? Because power corrupts. And great men are almost always bad men. Why is all of human history filled with slavery and wars, lies and backstabbing, treachery and murder? And it's because power corrupts and great men are bad men. Why today are our politics, Justice Department, FBI, CIA, school boards, the Center for Disease Control, and the World Health Organization, and every last public and private institution corrupt? Just let's go right back to it because power corrupts and great men are bad men. Here in this section of Acts, we see how the apostles, Peter and John, react to their own persecution. The Sanhedrin 
really wanted them in jail to restrict their movement and their speech, to get them to stop speaking about Jesus, to have them stop performing miracles in his name. This is what they really wanted to do. This was bad publicity for them. To just get them to stop everything and go away. How Peter and John respond here will will change history for all of time. What they do in the next five verses, six verses, will change history for all time. Recapping the preaching Peter gave to the judges assembled, we heard rulers of the people and elders, if we are being condemned, uh, examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is no self, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So today, we see the reaction to this sermon, or defense, against this charges brought. Reading uh, the verses 13 through 22. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jesus, uh, Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Now, some have wondered how Luke knew what went on in the private council of the Sanhedrin. And there, there are several thoughts on that. One is that the Apostle Paul might have been there before he was a Christian. If he wasn't there, Gamaliel, his teacher, was there. But other than that, we know that two members of the Sanhedrin were followers of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea and, I'm, I'm going off the top of my head, Joseph of Arimathea and, Nicodemus. pardon me? Nicodemus. Nicodemus. See, I didn't write it down, I just, I wouldn't forget that, would I? But we don't really know how he got this, this talking, but it's probably fairly accurate. Verse 13 says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and yes, they were bold, when the judges thought them cowards, 
And they didn't back down, but spoke the words. Remember, Jesus said, when the authorities lay hands on you and bring you before the synagogue, don't even think about what you're going to say because I'm going to give you the words. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak. And they spoke the words the Holy Spirit as promised by Jesus gave them. It continues that they were, it was perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. The common men of Israel were not expected to be theologians. They were farmers. They were merchants. They, were, they didn't study the law and the Pharisees. That was the law and the prophets. That was for the Pharisees to do. It was the scribes and Pharisees. They were the ones who were supposed to be the theologians, the doctors of the law. These men were peasants, and that's the best you can say about them. Well, you can say they're fishermen too, but uh, peasants and fishermen go hand in hand here. And so the judges were astonished, verse 13 concludes, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And it doesn't mean that they just suddenly understood that they were with Jesus. What they recognized was that the sitting under the teaching of Jesus is why these men knew the law, the prophets, the, the prophecies about Jesus and knew the healings that Jesus had done. It means that they recognized that the reason they could argue theology with the best minds of Israel, Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a one of the greatest teachers in uh, Jewish history. I, uh, and they could stand their own with Gamaliel. is because they had sat at the feet of Jesus. Verse 14 says, But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. An old saying is, Seeing is believing. The formerly lame beggar, had returned this new day to stand before the people who had healed him in solidarity. He probably knew what was going to be happening before the Sanhedrin. And the healed man, we see stories in the Bible where Jesus heals a group of people and they never return. They, Jesus said, only you are returning. Well, here, the man healed who was lame from birth, returns and stands in solidarity. The man really didn't have to say anything. He didn't have to say, look, I've been healed. Because people knew who he was. He'd been laying at that gate for 40 years, never standing. So he did not need to say anything. They knew without a doubt who the man was. They didn't need to question him. He was no pretender. He had laid helpless for years. He was absolutely known to the scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, the rulers, the elders. Because they went to the temple every day. And every day they passed him, probably giving him alms sometimes. And now this man who had lain at the gate stood before them completely healed. And it says, had nothing to say, they had nothing to say in opposition. So verse 15 says, Now, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. So now the corrupt judges conspire against the apostles. And um, you might say, what's 
corrupt about them getting together and talking about this case. Well, what was corrupt about it was they knew the apostles were innocent and they were seeing if they could do anything to get them. All these leaders were doing was trying to manage the fallout of their ill-advised actions. Somebody said it would have been better for the leaders of Israel to never have confronted Peter and John. People might have forgotten the miracles, they, but all arresting them did was put the spotlight on them to let everybody know what they had done. It would have been better to be quiet and to have just let them go away. Verse 15 says, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. What shall we do with these men? Well, they can't kill them like they did Jesus. That was pushing things as far as they could at the time. Every resident in Jerusalem, and for once this is not an exaggeration, every resident knew of this notable sign. Not only that, but it was so well known and attested that they themselves could not deny it. They couldn't say, this did not happen. So they had to come up with a plan B. In politics, they say that uh, the original problem is not what gets you in trouble. It's the cover-up. And that's because of what a cover-up implies. A cover-up says that you know what the truth is, but you don't care. A cover-up says that you don't care about truth or honesty. Probably the hardest thing for a human to do is admit when they're wrong, which is why nobody, especially in politics, ever does. Verse 17 says, But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. In the vernacular of today, we would ask, how'd that work out for you? The judges have given up their position of strength. They're admitting that they have nothing on the apostles. They, the apostles did nothing wrong. You know, when Pontius Pilate found out that Jesus had done nothing wrong, what did Pontius Pilate do? Pontius basically said to the Jewish leaders, say, what if, what if I have him um, scourged and send him away? But that wasn't good enough for the Sanhedrin. Only death would do. But here, they can't even scourge the apostles. The best they can do is a stern talking to, which is what they do. Tell them not to speak to anyone in the name of Jesus. Verse 18 says, So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus and charge when they say charged here, it's not a legal term, but it just means they told them not to teach. I'm not sure there was anything the judges could do legally to keep the apostles from teaching on the temple grounds because apparently it was not illegal because they're not, they're not being punished for it. They could probably only do what they've already done, harass them and slap them in jail overnight. 
Now, what the meat of our message today is verses 19 through 20. This is the apostles' response to the judges. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot speak, we cannot but speak of what we have heard. Now, if the rulers of Israel were astonished before at Peter and John, they would be flabbergasted now at this reply. The leaders of the Jews were students of philosophy. They were students of the law. This reply was already well known to them. It had been spoken 400 years before by Socrates. I didn't know a lot about Socrates. I come here and I look at this and I want you to just listen to these things. Socrates was on trial for his life around 399 BC. It was for impiety. He was on trial for leading his students, this was a charge, leading his students away from the gods of Athens. Okay? Uh, He was accused of being an atheist. And he said, they said, you do not believe in God. And he said, I believe in God. I don't believe in false gods. He believed in one creator. He believed he had a voice inside of him guiding him in decisions, but in decisions steering him away from bad consequences. Not leading him to good things, but guiding him away. He would not follow false gods. He had a voice that he believed lived in the souls of men. He believed in an afterlife, which the Athenians did not. He was offered release if he gave up his pursuit of truth and wisdom. People don't seem to like truth and wisdom, but he was offered his release if he would give up what his conscience knew to be right. And given that choice, Socrates said, I shall obey God rather than you. That was his response. Now, before you go running out and tell people that Mike said from the pulpit that Socrates was a Christian, I am not saying that. But what I am saying is, a common saying is, all truth is God's truth. Okay? All wisdom is God's wisdom. If Socrates had that wisdom, God gave it to him. Jesus told the disciples that when they were brought before the authorities, the Holy Spirit would give them words to say. Did God give Socrates words to say? So, enough about Socrates. We're not talking about Socrates today. I was just fascinated by that because it completely flew in the face of the gods and the religion of Athens and the parallels 
are striking. So the, the apostles stand up against Jesus. They said they could not do anything but speak about what they had seen and heard, which was Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. It was really all they could speak about. Verse 21a says, And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. They let them go because they were innocent? No. Because they had done nothing wrong? No. Because they couldn't figure out a way to punish them. And uh, verse 21b says, Because of the people, for all were praising God for what happened. Not because of their innocence. Not because they didn't do anything wrong. They would have punished them anyway. But they couldn't because they were afraid of the people. This time, the people would have stood up against them. They should have stood up when Jesus was crucified. But the people, they were afraid the people would revolt. Old Wizard of Id comic. Somebody comes to the king and says the people are revolting. And he says they certainly are. So, just, just an aside. Verse 22. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Now the people of Jerusalem knew this wasn't some run-of-the-mill healing. It was not a health and wealth gospel healing. It was not somebody slaying somebody in the spirit. All Jerusalem knew this man. They know he had been helpless at the temple gate for 40 years. Unless this was really well planned, there could be no denying the miracle that made him leap for joy. Now to bring this up to today. Since the beginning of this pandemic, which actually is being proved to have been no more deadly than an ordinary flu, the death statistics, uh, there are not excess deaths in the world. Authorities, great and small, have used it to put authoritarian policies that they have long wanted to implement in place. How far should Christians of good conscience go along with these policies? The testimony of Peter and John, and oddly Socrates, is that we are to obey God and not man. In the early days of the pandemic, the church set up, this church set up live streaming to protect people from not getting together, though it was open for people to come if they wanted to. And I myself stayed away for a couple of weeks and watched the live streaming. But those who wanted to attend could congregate together. I believe this was reasonable and a godly Christian response to an unknown epidemic. And the point is unknown. At the beginning, there was a lot of scaremongering going on. And we didn't know what was going to happen. Going back to the infant church, they also responded in this way to widespread illness. The church would often not meet for a specified time because there would be pandemics. They would not meet till the uh, illness was dying down and then they would meet again. So that is not a response that is unknown in the church. But as the authorities started feeling their oats and cracked down more and more in an arbitrary fashion, 
Responsible Christians, such as John MacArthur, resumed services in defiance of the governing authorities. And as a matter of fact, many in our uh, association of Reformed Baptists also did not have services for a while. And some were arguing that it was a violation of Romans 13 to go against the authorities. Romans 13, the, uh, the part that it, the important part of it, well, all of it's important, the part we're dealing with today says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. What would you have no fear of the one who is in would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Paul is clear on this, okay? You know, we're to be under, under the authorities. But the problem is, Peter and John are pretty clear on this too. That they will obey God rather than man. So who has the governing authority over what happened in the last two years? The civic authorities or God? And the answer, once again, as it always is, yes. We are to submit to authorities on that which they have control over. Okay? On what they have control over. But civic authorities have no control over the activities of Jesus Christ's church. If you think I'm wrong, here's the word from our greatest civic authority. Quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibit, prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Okay? That's what our government authorities originally said Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof now you can say Mikey that wasn't Congress prohibiting us from meeting it was Gavin Newsom or the mayor of whatever city and I will tell you that that's even worse if you're going to go along with the word of a mayor or a governor those orders were not legislated, but simply the whim of some power-mad simpleton. And I will put it that way. Even the U.S. Constitution says we are to obey God rather than man. It's not just in the realm of the church that Christians do not have to obey civil authorities. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. We cannot be told what we can or can't say. If you 
as Bill is, if you are, as Bill is, a street preacher and are told to stop, and Bill was told to stop plenty of times by the authorities and refused to stop, if you are protecting private property rights, you have no obligation to obey the authorities, no matter what they say. The same goes with protesting at abortion clinics. We are to obey God rather than man. Indeed, theoretically, our government agrees with us. What about in our writings? Congress will make no law abridging the freedom of the press. This does not mean ABC, CBS, NBC. That's not what it meant because though they had newspapers back then, most things were privately printed. Remember, the Federalist Papers were privately printed and distributed to the populace. What else? The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. If authorities try to ban the bearing of arms, Christians are under no obligation to obey the authorities. I would even say that if they... Well, I won't go any further. And these are not the only areas that Christians are not to be under civil authority. There are many others. Romans 13, obeying civil authority does not in any way overrule Peter's word that he would obey God rather than man. After all, as someone once said, Render under Caesar that which is Caesar's, and under God which is God's. All right, and that was Jesus. Let's do what he says. And in that spirit, render to Caesar what is his. Let's pray. Lord, as Christians, we're not about stirring up trouble. We're about preventing greater trouble down the line. If we are disobedient to civil authorities when we should not be, we will be punished. But if we're disobedient to civil authorities in the things you have commanded us to do, we would be under worse punishment were we to abstain from doing them. Lord, there are many times in this life that it seems like what is right is confusing. Lord, we pray that you would keep us strong, faithful, and in your word, and in your way, that we know what we should do when we confront these times. Lord, the government cannot overrule your command to not forsake the gathering of the saints to those brave churches who faced fines and punishment for doing what you've commanded. I pray that you will just bless them for what they have done. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.